This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange, and I am a very proud and enthusiastic member of the Carbon Almanac Network. Today, I'm introducing you to a great chat recorded by the Plant Chat Podcast about the importance of plant conservation. They are interviewing in this episode a scientist from the Chicago Botanical Garden who is um, championing a concept that we most often associate with zoos called Conservation in Living Museums. I really never thought of the work of botanical gardens in this way, but they're doing tremendous research in restoration, invasive species. And in this episode, they even give us some gardening tips for managing climate change in our own regions. So this is a really special episode, and we'll get you very excited about the possibilities of science and protecting endangered species in the plant world. Most of all, This episode will make you take plants seriously. Enjoy it. Welcome to the Plant Chat Podcast, part of the Green Industry Leaders Network, presented by Corona Tools. I'm Chris Avarice, your moderator and host. When you're out in your garden or somewhere in nature, do you ever stop to admire the amazing diversity of plants that you come across? There are countless species and varieties throughout the world that each provide something unique to the ecosystem they live in. It's easy to overlook the fact that our ever-changing climate and environmental impact that just like wildlife, plant species can also become extinct. A plant that perhaps provides shelter or food for wildlife, or maybe even a life-saving cure for a disease. Plant conservationists play a key role in helping to ensure that doesn't happen. On this episode, we're thrilled to be chatting with one of our plant chat partners, American Horticultural Society. Joining us is Beth Tuttle, President and CEO of American Horticultural Society, who's also a longtime master gardener. Beth, welcome to the Plant Chat Podcast. Why don't we go ahead and get started by having you introduce your special guest for this great topic? Thank you so much, Chris. We are so excited to have Dr. Kay Havens here with us today. Kay is Director of Plant Science and Conservation and a Senior Scientist at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Kay has been named the 2019 recipient of the American Horticultural Society's highest honor, the Liberty Hyde Bailey Award. She's received this award for her pioneering work with plant conservation, which has included the creation of an internationally recognized conservation program that's working to save rare and endangered plants and plant communities from threats such as climate change. Kay, I'm so happy to have you here with us today. Thank you. I am thrilled and humbled to be here. Well, congratulations for being among the 2019 Great American Gardener Award winners. I think it'd be great for people to hear a little bit about how you first got interested in botany and plants and conservation. What got you into this field in the first place? 
That's a great question. And I probably have to honor my mother and my grandmother here. Um, both of them were big gardeners and they gardener, they gardened with me from the time I was a little kid. I don't remember not being interested in plants. Um, and I think if you talk to a lot of botanists and ask us what got us into plants, it's almost always a parent, an aunt, a grandma who was doing some gardening and sparked that interest when we were quite young. Yeah, my, my plant mentor was my mother. Yeah. And I always tell the story that it was the first time she showed me how to candy a violet and eat it, <laughs> yeah. which I thought was kind of magical. So um, for those who don't know, the Liberty Hyde Bailey Award, it recognizes significant achievements and leadership that have advanced the field of horticulture in America. And Liberty Hyde Bailey wrote, I'm going to quote here, perhaps our greatest specific need is a wholesome return to nature in our moments of leisure. It is a means of restoring the proper balance and proportion in our lives. How does this philosophy relate to your work, this idea of restoring a proper balance and proportion in our lives and our world? Yeah, it's a really beautiful quotation. And um, I, I agree with it 100% that in order to appreciate plants, in order to care about them, we have to spend time with them and getting out in nature and getting to know those plants and plant communities is what leads us to care about them and therefore conserve them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as I understand it, you helped found or launch um, the Chicago Botanic Gardens Plant Conservation Program. And these programs are becoming more common in botanic gardens around the world. When we were contemplating the award, we had some dialogue internally about the role that plant conservation plays in horticulture today. And I'm not sure everybody understands that connection. So I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about why this conservation work was a natural fit within the botanic garden model and really how this program came to be started. Right. So I think the idea of doing conservation in a living museum really started with zoos. And zoos have been doing this since the 70s and um, really focusing on using their collections to conserve and to reintroduce the animals that they care for. And we maintain botanic garden collections for many of the same reasons. We have collections so people can enjoy their beauty. We have collections so we can use them for education and research. And we have collections so we can use them to conserve that species and reintroduce it to the wild. And um, at the time I joined the garden, our president and CEO was Barbara Carr, and she had come from the Lincoln Park Zoo prior to being here at the Botanic Garden. And I think she recognized that role, and she really wanted to see the garden fulfill that mission um, in a way that it hadn't prior to that. And it was at a time when um, the Center for Plant Conservation had just started, and um, that was a, a network of botanic gardens that were dedicated to maintaining seed collections of rare species in their region. And so it kind of, there was a synergy of ideas at that time. And um, that's how this program started. And, and when was that? How many years ago was that? Um, about 25 years ago. Wow, long time ago. Yeah, I've been at the garden almost 25 years. So. <laughs> and did you come to the garden as a conservationist? Or I, did you come in a different role? I came as a conservationist. So uh, 
my my PhD is in biology, but I studied an endangered plant, and that led me to wanting to do something concrete um, to help conserve rare plants. And my first job was at the Missouri Botanical Garden as their conservation biologist. And after three years there, I had the opportunity to to start the program here at Chicago Botanic Garden and moved up to do that. Um, so yeah, it's been a, a really fun ride here. Well, tell us a little bit about how the program has grown or evolved and its focus. That would be that would be probably be interesting to hear about. Right. So when we started, we were um, really interested in conserving endangered plants, um, and of course, we still are. Um, but at that time, there were there was just myself um, and uh, a taxonomist at the garden. And so we were making seed collections of rare plants from the upper Midwest, and we were putting those in the seed bank, and we were learning how to grow those species. And the more we worked on it, the more we realized that um, we needed to do research on the threats to plant communities, what was causing these plants to become rare in the first place. And that led to expanding our research programs into things like um, studying climate change, studying invasive species, um, understanding how habitat fragmentation or development is affecting plant populations. And so um, that was kind of the first iteration of growth. And then we um, started a um, graduate program with Northwestern University. And at that point, we expanded even further to offer kind of the whole range of botany um, courses here at the garden. Okay, that's wonderful. So you've either done yourself or overseen a lot of different plant conservation projects and research initiatives. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about a couple of the most significant research projects that you've been involved with and why they've been so important? Some Right. Um, I'm really, I think, proudest of the research that has moved the needle in plant conservation, that has done something concrete. Um, to change how plants are managed or conserved. Um, so one of the first things I did um, was with uh, a couple of colleagues, um, wrote and edited a book on ex situ or off-site plant conservation, the, the kind of conservation we do at botanic gardens and zoos, and really focusing on um, how can we better manage plants when they're in our care so that um, they will be able to be reintroduced to the wild. Another um, area of research I worked on a lot was understanding how cultivars of invasive plants behave. So invasive plants we know are one of the big threats to natural areas. And in the horticulture industry, there is a lot of, I think, questions about do cultivars of invasive plants behave the same way? And do we need to treat them the same way if we're agreeing not to sell a particular invasive species, does that mean all the cultivars are equally bad? And there's this idea that plants that make fewer seeds should be less invasive. And so we did a lot of modeling looking at, is that true for different kinds of plants, for annual plants, for perennial plants, for woody plants? And Can you give us an example? Give us an example of one of those invasive plants that maybe has a cultivar that someone may be familiar with. Okay, so in our area, um, buckthorn, um, Ramnus cathartica is a horrible invasive, but fine line buckthorn is one that was still marketed until fairly recently. 
Um, another uh, popular um, plant is barberry that has scores of cultivars, um, some that make a lot of fruit, some that make only a few. And so we wanted to know, are these cultivars that make fewer seeds, are they safe? And um, what our modeling showed was for um, woody species and species that live a long time, any seed set is, um, is bad and that potentially those cultivars could still be invasive. And so that led to a lot of changes in invasive plant regulations at states in states across the U.S. And so, so that's a piece of work that that I'm I'm quite proud of. Um, more recently, I've been working on um, adapting zoo conservation techniques to botanic gardens. And so, if you're familiar with zoos, you know they maintain stud books to decide which animals breed with each other in order to maintain the most genetic diversity in their collection. And we're taking some of those techniques and applying them to plants. Well, that's really interesting. So some of your research, maybe a lot of it these days, is focusing on the effects of climate change on plant communities and on conservation. Can you talk to us a little bit about the effects of climate change and what those serious uh, impacts may be and how that comes into play in your conservation work? Right. So a lot of um, the work I do on climate change has to do with how do we source seed for restoration in a changing climate. So for a long time, kind of the, the dogma in the restoration community has been local is best, and we should use locally sourced seed for restoration. But when we think about a changing climate, maybe we need to go a little bit further afield to source those seeds. And so those are some of the experiments. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so, so with that one, it sounds to me like if I understand what you're saying about going farther afield, it means that if if your area, your particular area is either getting warmer or colder, you may need to go warmer or colder to source seeds that are adapted to that temperature range. Is that really what you're saying in some respects? Yeah, um, I'll rephrase it here. Um, so the idea that um, local seed is best, um, if, if your climate is changing rapidly, that may no longer be true. And as we have uh, much hotter summers or much wetter springs, we may need to go to warmer or wetter climates to um, source seed to have it persist over the long term um, in the, the areas we're restoring. So it sounds to me like if, if, if the climate change progression is happening rapidly, then you and other conservation scientists have to be constantly looking at this kind of research. It's not a one and done. It's that you have to continually be making these kinds of um, changes, decisions, choices. Is that accurate? That is. Um yeah, because climate change isn't a single step. It's continuing. Um, it's ongoing. And so we have to continually refine our methods for restoration. One of the interesting things we found in doing some of this research, and this is work of one of my graduate students, Jessa Finch, um, and her collaborator, Jeff Walk, is they were looking at um, 
if you're a plant that can germinate, your seeds can germinate in a whole lot of climates, you might think that that's a plant that would do better under climate change. If you have a very broad niche um, of conditions under which you can germinate. But what they found was with species that had very broad germination niches, they shifted to germinate in the fall. And so that is kind of counterintuitive thing, but also a warning flag that if we see um, some of these very tolerant species shifting when they germinate and then die over the winter, um, they may not be so tolerant after all. That's really interesting. So from your perspective, what are some of the biggest challenges in American plant conservation right now and that we should be looking forward to in terms of the next decade? So, you know, on the science side, I think the big challenges are continue to be climate change, invasive species, um, the pollinator crisis, um, certainly affecting plants. But probably the biggest challenge is getting people to take plants seriously, to appreciate them. The political will and the funding um, to conserve them uh, remains probably always our biggest challenge. Yeah, and I think that's where I think that's where the work that organizations like the American Horticultural Society and the Chicago, excuse me, Chicago Botanic Garden and so many other uh, horticulturally focused organizations, that's really where all of our missions tend to meet is in seeking to communicate and embody the value uh, of plants in our lives and in the ways that they address so many vital needs, whether they are uh, human health needs, environmental needs, um, economic uh, needs, all of these areas, the plants around us are affecting that. And I wonder about how strongly the conservation message uh, is you, you how strongly you see that being infused into the broader public education programs and in what ways you all have been seeking to engage the public in having a little bit of a sense of stake if you will in in the in the future of plants and on our planet right um i talk to a lot of different groups um from elected officials to visitors here at the garden and try to remind them that, you know, if they like to eat, if they like to breathe, if they take medicine, they can thank a plant for that. And really every environmental challenge that we're facing, um, climate change and food security and um, dealing with these strange weather events and wildfires, there are green solutions to all of these. and knowledge of plants is really important. And so um, getting the public interested in plants and feeling like um, they're important and they recognize the gifts that they give us um, is, is, I think, one of the most important things all of our organizations can do. Right, right. And I know some of your colleagues, uh, I, was, I was met some of your colleagues when I was just in Chicago for uh, the meeting of the Seed Your Future movement, which is really dedicated to um, bringing more uh, presence and visibility and interest uh, in front of young people uh, in order to encourage them to pursue careers that engage with plants or drive off of some kind of plant knowledge. Are you seeing, uh, are you seeing that in the student populations that you work with? I know you, you 
teach and have been engaged with a lot of students over the time. Are you seeing more interest or less? I, I think I, I'm seeing more interest um, from a lot of students. We have a, a huge group of graduate students here at the garden who are, are really passionate about plants. But I do think that it starts early. You know, if we go back to our origin stories we were talking about um, earlier, we all got interested in plants when we were really small. And so having a mentor in your life when you're four, five, six, that's teaching you why plants are cool and, you know, here's how you pick a cucumber and here's how you grow a beet and let's sit and watch these flowers and watch the hummingbirds come in. All of those things shape people's interest. And it's really important, I think, to catch them um, at an early age when, when kids are naturally curious right. and asking questions um, about science. And then, you know, supporting them all the way through if, if they're interested in a career in botany and horticulture and plant science of some sort um, so that they can see that this is a, a, a valid and valuable career trajectory. Right, right. Well, you know, that's really the impetus behind um, things like the nature preschools and so much of the current movement in outdoor education and certainly the American Horticultural Society's work for the last 25 years around the, um, the uh, National Children and Youth Gardening Symposium, which 25 years ago was fairly early in the movement for formalized garden education, um, but was very forward thinking at the time. And we see it, uh, you know, having really sustained itself over all those years and, and new generations of teachers coming in who come in and say, I don't really know a lot about plants and gardening, but I understand the value of this and the importance of teaching it early. And so I want to learn. And we really encourage that and appreciate the partnership that we have with so many of the botanic gardens around the country and the professionals in the horticulture field who help, who help make that possible. Let's take a quick break to share exciting news about connecting with other like-minded green industry professionals. Check out the Green Industry Leaders Network community growing on now in our Facebook group. We welcome our listeners to join us and continue the conversation, ask questions related to the episode, and share industry news and stories with others who are interested in gardening, tree care, landscape, and more. It's a friendly, non-promotional forum where you can connect, share, and engage with us. Just go to Facebook and look for Green Industry Leaders Network Group and request an invite today. And be sure to let us know that you're a podcast listener. Now back to our episode. So our listeners um, and the AHS members um, are often home gardeners, and I'm curious to know um, when you have a chance to talk to people like them um, personally, how do you talk to them about conservation, why it's important, and what they can do to help? Why is it relevant to them, and what can they do to help? And I think that goes back to your thank a plant message, but, uh, but what can they do? Right. You know... All life depends on plants. We can't live without them. They give us all these incredible gifts. Um, I was at a, a conference recently and a colleague was asked why um, people should care about plants. And he suggested, um, close your eyes and go to your happy place and what's around you. And I thought that was a really good metaphor for the fact that nature is really a happy place for, for all of us. It's restorative. Um, and it's plants that form that foundation. And, uh, you know, home gardeners can be every bit as involved in important conservation decisions 
um, both in um, what they plant in their garden. Um, so, you know, not planting invasive species, planting species that support wildlife, um, birds and pollinators. Um, and then, you know, how they spend their time as well. Either you can volunteer at a botanic garden um, or just take your child or grandchild out in the garden and be that mentor. Yeah, those are all great suggestions. Um, I am familiar with the Bud Burst Project. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because that's another engagement opportunity for people who are just out and about in gardens. Yeah, so Bumper started um, over 10 years ago as a way to crowdsource data about when changes in plants were happening. So it, phenology is the technical term for when does a plant each year, when does it um, break bud, when does it flower, when does it fruit, when does it senesce and die in the fall. And in order to understand how climate change is affecting plants on a national level, you need a tremendous amount of data, this phenology data. And crowdsourcing it is a, a great way to get that. And that's what Budverse started as, a crowdsource um, effort to get phenology data across the country. And we're still doing that. But we also recognize that we wanted to take um, many of our members on a journey through the scientific process. We wanted to invite them along to do a project from start to finish, to think about a question, collect the data to answer it, interpret that data and draw their own conclusions. And so that led to our first research project associated with Budburst, which is called Budburst Nativars, Nativars being cultivars of native plants. And one of the big questions for pollinator gardens is do native ours support pollinators the same way that native plants do? And so we don't know the answer. Uh, we wanted to find out the answer and we thought inviting this community of people who like to watch plants along um, would be a great way to get that answer. So we're um, working with botanic gardens around the country. We have um, native our gardens um, here at Chicago Botanic Garden, people can plant the plants in their own yard or in their schoolyard, and then um, make observations during the bloom period. Um, it doesn't have to be onerous, maybe 10 minutes a week, and look at which plants the pollinators are using. Are they going more to the cultivated varieties? Are they going more to the straight native species? And submit that data to us and in three years, when we wind up the project, uh, we'll have some answers and um, engage the community in, in looking at those data and drawing their own conclusions about what to grow in their own gardens. Do you have an idea? How many people have participated? Do you have an idea around that? So, I mean, scale, just scale of participation. How interesting is this? And how, how, how inclined are people to, to undertake and partake? Yeah, so it's a new project that we just started last summer. And okay. Um, the first year was really getting your garden in the ground. Um, we know we, we trained um, over 100 people at the Chicago Botanic Garden on how to make observations. Um, we have gardens in uh, 12 schools in the Chicago area. So fourth through sixth graders throughout Chicago will be doing this project. 
Um, we have gardens in at forest preserves, um, the Cook County Forest Preserves. And we have partners in Denver and San Diego who are doing the same thing. So, Wonderful. yeah, um, you know, it's it's not a million, but it is hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it'll grow over time, I'm sure. Yes. So on a similar note, I'm wondering what kind of goals and shared concerns do you find or do you try to uh, help um, seed in the American horticulture industry that are common to the goals you all are working with? Because we have, on the one hand, we have the consumer who's buying, planting, caring for, but we've got the industry, which has a pretty significant impact on what people are buying, both the landscape designers and the plant purveyors. Mm-hmm. And so how do you all come together or where do you come together? Well, some of the areas we talk a lot uh, are um, invasive species, as mm-hmm. you might expect. Um, this is an area where I think there is common ground, where there are a few bad actors, a few plants that we really don't want to be promoting um, for people to use in their, in their landscapes. And coming to agreement on those um, has been a a fun journey, and uh, we continue to work on it. Um, And then the area of pollinator gardens is another, it's really popular right now. It's wonderful. It's a great way to get more out of your garden. We all love a beautiful garden, but if it can work hard and support wildlife too, all the better. Mm -hmm. And so that's another area we interact a fair bit. But I think instilling a love of plants um, for the next generation is is probably the area where we have the most common ground. Um, Yeah, yeah. And we spend some time thinking and talking about the the changing aesthetics, for example. The pollinator gardening movement has really had an impact on what people think of as um, beauty, how they define beauty in a garden. And, and for me, beauty is a garden that shows really, really healthy ecological system at work, right? It's one that, it's one that, that may not be the most manicured garden, but, it, but it's got all of this activity that's happening from the soil level up to the, you know, up to the sky. And um, I hope that we're seeing that percolate through, uh, you know, what, 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 what's being put out there in the design aesthetic and in the plant purveying world and all of that. Do you find people asking you questions about that or still saying I'm getting in trouble with my neighbors because my garden is, is a, you know, it's it's a great habitat, but it's not what they want to see. Right. Do you think that's changing? I I think it is changing. Um, And I, I think uh, particularly in kind of home landscapes, if you have a few, um, we call them cues to care, in your home garden, you know, that that you're intentional about um, the groupings of plants you're putting there. You, you might have a little fence around them. You might, you know, have a sign that says butterfly habitat yep. or something so people know that you're taking care of this garden and it's um, serving a purpose for you and for the wildlife that depend on it. Um, I, I find nothing more joyful than sitting in my garden and watching the hummingbirds come in and... Yeah or watching the hawk moths in the evening, it's, it's a joy. And I think that is changing. People are beginning to see what a important ecological service their garden can provide. Right, right. So coming full circle, and this is probably not something you expected me to ask you, but 
you know, here you are, uh, you'll, I hope, be with us in June when you receive the Liberty High Bailey Award, which is really, um, you know, it's really a testament to a lifetime and, and a wonderful professional career. Um, if I asked you, what's next? Like, what do you think you're next? You know, what, what's the next thing that you really want to tackle or accomplish or that would really let you feel like, all right, I've, I've crossed one more big milestone that's up. It's making you really curious right now or really hungry for more knowledge and action. What would that be? Well, that is a great question. Um, the, the area of research that we're working really hard on is, is one I mentioned earlier, which is the applying zoo techniques to prevent genetic loss in botanic garden collections. We have so many plants that are extinct in the wild that exist only in botanic gardens. We're our last, we're the last chance for those species and we have to do everything we can to save them. And so that's something I feel really passionate about um, and probably the, the area of research I'm most excited about right now. Well, that's wonderful. I am so glad you were able to join us today. This has been a delightful conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm eager to go and be part of Bud Burst if I can <laughs> when it comes to my area, uh, because I am one of those plant watchers. And um, I really appreciate having you with us today. Thank you so much. And I have one question for you, Kay, before we sign off. If you had to select one takeaway for our listeners on this episode, what would that be? I would want them to um, appreciate the plants in their life a little bit more. Um, I know all your listeners are already gardeners, um, but think about all the things those plants do for you and then share it with someone. Well, thank you both for joining us today on this Green Industry Leaders Network podcast. And this has been a real treat for us to learn more about what you do and the importance of plant conservation. Thank you. Thank you. And a very special thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We look forward to presenting you with more great topics each week. And we would love to hear your comments and feedback by connecting with Corona Tools. Just check the podcast notes for the links to our social media platforms. That's it. Make it a great day in the garden or landscape. And thank you again for tuning in to the Green Industry Leaders Network podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the Plant Chat podcast. This episode was created in collaboration with the Green Industry Leaders Network by Corona Tools. We want to thank Chris Sabaris for allowing us to share this episode with you. Special thanks to Dr. Linda Erlrich for introducing us to today's episode. To explore additional topics related to plants, conservation, and gardening inside the Carbon Almanac Network, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash footnotes and enter your search terms. Search results will connect you to information published in the Daily Difference newsletter and the Almanac itself. There's a lot to explore. See it all at thecarbonalmanac.org.